You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Chapter 20, are you there? Uh, Chapter 20 and verse 1. Uh, We're going to read a big section of scripture and then we're going to unpack it. You good good with that? Uh, Follow along with me as I read. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur. And he stayed at Gerar. Uh, You might want to circle the word there. Where was there? Well, that was the trees of Mamre, which is in Hebron. That's where he was staying. He was there, and you'll remember that is where God and two angels come and met him in human form. A Christophany in the Old Testament. We looked at that in previous weeks. Uh, And here he, he brings them into their house, and they have this fellowship, and that's where he was. And he moves from there, and he goes down, and it tells us here that he goes to Gerar. To help you understand where those are, here's a map that might help you see. Mamre is right up there in the town of Hebron. Uh, That's where Abraham was. And he goes 70 miles down to the south and a little to the west down to Gerar. Gerar is a Philistine town. Philistines are the enemies of God, right? He's going down to a Philistine camp. It doesn't tell us why he goes down there. It could be because he's looking for Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah just got destroyed, turned to sulfur and ash, and it may be he's like maybe looking for a lot. I don't know. Doesn't tell us. We can only surmise. But he makes this 70 mile, about 70, 80 mile trek, and we'll see it's down here by Gaza, that green box there on the west side. Uh, that's the Gaza Strip. We hear about that in the news all the time. This is about 15 miles from Gaza. You can see Jerusalem up to the north there. So it gives you an idea of where he's going. He goes down to Gerar, and this is a Philistine city, okay? Uh, Look at verse 2. Now, Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she is my, my what? My sister. Again? Are you kidding? And Abimelech... The king of Gerar, the Philistine king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Took her where? Took her home. Took her into his harem. Took her into part of his, you know, one of his geisha girls, right? Uh, What the heck? Uh, Abram, what are you doing saying she's my sister? By the way, a half-truth is a full-blown lie. May we not ever fool ourselves that we can say a half-truth and we're only fooling who when we do that? Only fooling yourself. Uh, So here we go. Oh my gosh, what the heck? We've seen this before. Um, Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. Here Abimelech is a Philistine king. He's a pagan, and God comes to him in a dream. How interesting. Look what he says. Uh, Nice lovey-dovey message for Abimelech. Indeed, you are a dead man. 
because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. I hear you get the tenor of this dream, don't you? This isn't a dream. What is it? This is a nightmare. You got God Almighty saying, dude, you're a dead man. Now, if God really wanted him to be a dead man, what would he already be? Yeah. I mean, God can just say no soup for you and your heart stops beating, right? Uh, it's over. Uh, but here we get the tenor of this dream and Abimelech's like, oh my gosh, cold sweats, middle of the night, right? Verse four. But Abimelech had not come near her. He hadn't had relations with Sarah yet. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Oh, what do we learn from his comment? Will you slay a righteous nation also? What nation is he talking about? Gerar, right, the Philistine town. Uh, and so he probably knows about Sodom and Gomorrah. Every kingdom in the area knows about Sodom and Gomorrah. And they know that God brought judgment and turned it to sulfur and ash. And God brought, God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for its sexual immorality. It's incredible wickedness. Uh, Ezekiel 16, 49 tells us that they had pride, fullness of food, an abundance of idleness, and neither did they care for the poor and the needy. Sound familiar? And because of that pride and that wealth that they had, they started getting into extreme sexual immorality, and God judged them. And now this Philistine king says, wait a minute, we're not doing the things Sodom and Gomorrah did. Are you going to judge us also? Uh, uh, and that's his, you know, his fear. Uh, verse 5, did not he, who's the he? Abram, did not Abram say to me, she is my sister? And she, who's the she? Sarai. And she, didn't she say, even she herself say, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Hey, I didn't know. She told me she was single. I didn't realize she was another man's wife. In the integrity of my heart, I have done this. Now, I want you to look at how much integrity can you possibly have when you're adding a woman to your harem? <laughs> but isn't it amazing how we always think we're so righteous and how we justify our own sin and how we think what they're doing is really messed up, but hey, I'm good. Uh, uh, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And it's always a mistake to come to God on your own integrity, right? Just come to him and say, Lord, I need to be forgiven. I'm a sinner. Um, Abraham says, listen, I mean, uh, uh, Abimelech says, listen, I didn't mean to do this. I didn't know. She told me she was single. Verse six, and God said to him in a dream, this is still a dream going on. Yes, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against who? Me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I want you to underline those words. I also withheld you from sinning against me. Circle the me. Your sin is against God when you sin. And God says, I withheld you from sinning against me, and I did not allow you to touch her. We'll look at that more in just a little bit, little bit but I want you to underline it right now. Verse 7. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife. 
And read these next words out loud for me. For he is a prophet. What the heck? This is the first time in the Bible the word prophet is used. And it's out of God's own mouth. He, that's Abraham, is a prophet. And here we see the first time that a prophet is used, a prophet is one who would speak God's word to others, who would intercede between God and people. And here the first time, the first example, the first prophet that we know of in the Bible is referred to a man who is doing what? Lying. Crazy. What a sad picture. There's a verse that I hold on to as a pastor. I want you to know, just flat out, flat out transparent, being very forthright with you, being just incredibly vulnerable to you. I would have quit being a pastor if this verse wasn't in the Bible. And that verse is this. It says, it pleases God by the foolishness of man's preaching to save those who believe. Do you realize how... how what a folly it is for me to stand up here and tell you about God when I'm just a messed up man, just a flawed sinner. But it pleases God by the foolishness of man's preaching to save those who believe. Therefore, it has kept me from quitting ministry time and time again because I know that this pleases God. Wouldn't it be far more effective, by the way, if God just opened up the heavens once a year and showed the whole earth, everybody on it, hey, hey, here I am, I see you, this is heaven, you're messing up, better get right, this is my son Jesus, he died on the cross for you, better listen to him, right? Uh, and then closed up heaven. And then just to seal the deal, open up hell. <laughs> and hey, by the way, this is hell. And this is where you're going. If you, unless you repent of your sins and look at the cross and look what I did for you. I became a man. I went to a cross on your behalf. I did all of this because I love you. I did all of this because I want a relationship with you. I did all of this because there's no way you could ever save yourself. And so I came in your pathetic pity and I cleansed you of your sins. And all who look upon me will be saved. And he closes up hell. That'd be effective, man. There wouldn't be one atheist on planet Earth. Why doesn't God do that? Here's why God doesn't do it. Because all of us would choose heaven. And we would choose heaven because we're selfish. How many of you would rather live in Rancho Santa Fe, the national city? <laughs> and if you had the choice, you would pick it. But you're not picking it because you love a person there. You're picking it because you're selfish. And God knows that if he opened up heaven, every person would choose it. But we would choose it for the wrong reasons. And God says, I'm not interested in that. Therefore, it pleases God, pleases God by the foolishness of man's preaching to save those who believe. And here he takes this wayward servant who's lying. And God humbles himself and says, I'll use him. As a matter of fact, even though he's sinning, I'll still call him my son. 
I'll still call him a prophet. I'll still speak as if he was righteous. Oh, the amazing grace of God. It pleases God by the foolishness of man's preaching to save those who believe. Oh, the wisdom, how high he is. Um, Verse 7, one more time. Therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. Crazy. I'm going to strike you dead unless Abraham prays for you. Wow. Uh, But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die. You and all who are yours, your entire family, I'm going to wipe out if you don't release this woman. Verse uh, verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. Well, I guess he did. No kidding, man. Rose early in the morning, and look at this. He called all of his servants, and he told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. Uh, That doesn't make sense yet. It will in just a minute. I want you to underline it. And the men were very much afraid. What men? All the men in Abimelech's kingdom, all of them were very much afraid. I want you to underline that. We'll come back to that. You'll understand why in just a moment. Uh, Verse 9. And Abimelech, that's the king, he called Abraham and said to him, hey, look, we've got to have a meeting right here, right now. Uh, Abraham comes in. Now, Abraham, does, does Abraham know that Abimelech had a dream last night? No. He, just like another day to him, he comes in, and Abimelech says, hey, get Abraham. Abraham comes in, and he says, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom this great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to have been done. Uh, What's he saying? He's saying, Abram, what the heck? You have been a horrible witness of God. You have been a liar. You have caused me great harm. What in the heck are you doing? Isn't it a horrible thing when you realize you've been a bad witness for the God that you love? And here's an unbeliever rebuking a believer. What the heck? And oh, how it grieves the heart of a man or a woman who's been saved by Jesus by his incredible grace to then drag his name through the mud like Abram just did. Oh, I can't even imagine what he must be feeling. Verse 10, then Abimelech said to Abram, what did you have in view when you have done this thing? What's he saying? Loose paraphrase. What the heck were you thinking? Why did you tell me she was your sister? Why did you have her tell me she was your, your, your brother? Uh, or if I said that wrong, you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> what, what were you thinking? Right? Just like... How did you think this was going to work out, right? Like, what do you think? Verse 11, then Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God was not in this place, that they will kill me on the account of my wife. Oh, my goodness. What's he saying? 
Well, in self-preservation, I threw my wife under the bus because you were, I thought you were so wicked and you don't even know God. And so I thought I'd take care of myself. Man, how pathetic. How pathetic. Uh, verse 12. Uh, but indeed, she truly is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Uh, what's he doing here? <laughs> Trying to justify himself. And I want to just say it again. A half-truth is a full-blown lie. And you'll never trick anyone except yourself. When someone tells you a half lie, it's only a matter of time before it's exposed and they will look at you and they will think, they won't think what a half liar, they will think what a full-blown liar you are. Uh, you're only deceiving yourself, Abram. Sorry, it's not working. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. What the heck? Abraham, you're, just, you're like getting the shovel out and digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Not only do we realize you're, you're, you're telling a half-truth and you're trying to justify it, but what do we learn here? This lie was what? Premeditated. It was a premeditated lie. Not only was it premeditated, it was used frequently. This was their plan. Wherever we go, uh, we don't even know how many times Abraham's told this lie, right? We know that it happened before in Egypt, but here, uh, we, how many times in between? He said, wherever you go, this is going to be our default, right? Uh, verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored Sarah, his wife, to him, totally unharmed, totally untouched. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Dwell in it wherever it pleases you. You got the lay of the land. You can take any spot you want. Oh, my gosh. What just happened here? Abram just got even richer. Male servants, female servants, Oxen, sheep, cattle, I mean, just all kind, just loaded him up. Oh, my goodness. How does this work? And then you can take the land. You can take anywhere you want. Uh, just go. Uh, verse 16. Then Sarah, excuse me, then to Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. And I've done this, indeed, this, is, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Uh, the Hebrew, you probably have a footnote in your Bible. The Hebrew says, this vindicates you in the eyes of all who are with you. In other words, you've been vindicated, you've been justified. Uh, uh, thus uh, she was rebuked. Rebuked is a bad translation. It should say, thus she was vindicated or thus she was justified. In other words, King Abimelech says, hey, I want everyone to know I did not have relations with her and here is her 
her payment and she is vindicated. She is uh, set free. She is good to go. Verse, uh, verse 16. Uh, excuse me, verse, uh, where'd I leave off? 17, thank you. Um, well, let's stop there just for a moment. Uh, let's look at some things. Uh, we read a lot of scripture. Let's kind of unpack it. Here we see, what does Abram do? He falls into the same sin that caused him so much harm 25 years ago in Egypt. The exact same sin. Lying and saying, she's my sister. And once again, uh, by the way, how well did that work out for him 25 years ago in Egypt? Didn't work out well at all. Why did he do it in Egypt? Because he was afraid, thought he was going to die, thought the king was going to take his wife and he'd be killed. Same exact reason. And it didn't work out well for him. He leaves Egypt with egg on his face, with tail between his legs. And here, 25 years later, what's he doing? The same exact thing. The Bible says, isn't it amazing how the dog returns to its vomit? You ever watch that, by the way? Dog, right there on the grass. Then you turn around, the dog's like eating it again. That's the thing that just made you sick. What's wrong with you? And God's not talking about dogs. Who's God talking about? Did you not learn? Nope, apparently not. Uh, Didn't work out well for him. He also got Hagar in Egypt. And she became a surrogate mother of you know, another big mess, right? Uh, uh, didn't, work out, didn't work out well. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, once again, God saves his stumbling, sinning servant and pours his grace upon him and saves him from sure and utter disaster. And I want to bring us our first point this morning just to write home in all of our hearts. And I think you know this, but it is worthy of great meditation Jesus does not save us because we are good. Jesus saves us because he is good. It is his goodness on our life that saves us. And we stumble in sin again and again and again. And we're not earning our salvation. We receive our salvation as a free gift. It is all his goodness. It has nothing to do with our goodness. And here that is clearly on display in Abram's life. Abram just lied big time. And he lacked faith in God. He didn't think God would protect him. Abram, what are you afraid of? Are you serious? God has made a promise with you. God has given a covenant to you. He has blessed you abundantly. Over and over, his hand is upon you. He has told you you're going to have a son. And through that son, you're going to have, God is going to build an entire nation, a great nation, the nation Israel. And from that nation, the Messiah will come. And Abram, you haven't even had a son yet. There's no way you can die. What are you afraid of? I don't know. I wasn't thinking about all that. I was just thinking about myself. And God just saves him as he is. Not because Abram's good, but because God is so good. And notice this. Not only does uh, God save Abram, but what else does God do? God blesses Abram abundantly. Blesses his socks off. It's incredible. Abram deserves a broken marriage and a rebuke from God. And as we read this, do you read any rebuke from God? No, God instead saves his marriage, which God loves to do. Just come to God and say, God, I've made a mess. Will you save my marriage? 
God loves saving marriages. And God saves his marriage and blesses him with great riches. Just incredible. With sheep, with oxen, with silver, with manservants, female servants, you know, new employees, all this stuff. This is God's grace on Abram. This is God's grace to all who are in Jesus Christ. This is how he works. If you're walking around life thinking, oh, God's not going to bless me now. I blew it. You don't know God. God blesses us when we don't deserve it. That's the very definition of grace. The very definition of grace is uh, the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. All his goodness, not your goodness. And God here blesses the socks off of Abram, even when he doesn't deserve it. Saves Abram's marriage. Now, we're going to discover that Abram and Sarah have been in Gerar for quite some time. I want to give you a timeline in, in your mind. Uh, these chapters that we've been reading about Sodom and Gomorrah and these two angels coming down and talking with Lot, excuse me, talking with Abram uh, in the tent and all these things. God told Abram uh, when, uh, when all that happened, this time next year, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Okay, so we know that all these chapters happen in a very short period of time. All this has to happen. Isaac's not born yet. That means all this has happened in a very short period of time. As a matter of fact, Abram and Sarah have probably been in Gerar for two or three, four months now. And Sarah might even be pregnant right now with Abraham's child. And think about what Abram almost did. I mean, just mind-boggling. Take a look at this. Uh, uh, God completely stops uh, this from happening uh, and saves their marriage and saves everything that God's doing in their life. Look at verse 6 and 7 one more time. Abimelech says, listen, I, she told me she was single. Uh, she was on mingle or whatever those things are, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> verse 6, and God said to him, in a dream, yes, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Here's the question for you. How did God stop King Abimelech from going into Sarah? How did he stop him from having her? What did he do? How did he stop a king from having this beautiful woman? Well, the scripture actually tells us, uh, jump down to the end of the chapter, the verse that we didn't read, verse 17. Are you there? So here's the setting. Abraham's standing before Abimelech as a liar, but as God's prophet. And uh, God's told Abimelech, he's going to pray for you. And so Abimelech says, Abram, will you pray for me? Look at verse 17. So Abram prayed to God. Prayed to God for Abimelech, right? Look at this. Abram prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. God healed Abimelech from what? Did Abimelech need healing? Apparently. Uh, what did God heal Abimelech for, from? Well, I'm going to cut to the chase from male impotence. You say, how do you know that? Well, let's look at the, look at the story. Uh, 
God prayed, excuse me, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female servants and they bore children. So whatever he healed them for, they couldn't bear children before. This is why we know he's been there for some months. Nobody was getting pregnant and now they're going to bear children. Verse, uh, verse 18, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, not just Abimelech's wife, but who? All of them, in other words, nobody's having a good time anywhere in the whole town of Gerar, right? <laughs> the Lord closed all of the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. No one was having relations. That's why when he calls all the men of the kingdom and says, hey, we need to have a meeting, and I told you to underline in verse 8, all the servants told them all these things in the hearing, and all the men were very much afraid. They were like, yeah, get this Abraham guy in here right now. Let's get this thing fixed, right? <laughs> Do you understand what's going on? And I got to just marvel. Don't you love a good laugh? Do you know why you love a good laugh? Because you're Imago Dei. You're created in the image of God, and God has an amazing sense of humor. He says, oh, look, Abraham's messing things up. He's really making a mess. Uh, we're going to cause a little problem to come down on Gerar. And uh, uh, no one's going to be happy. Uh, uh, and uh, I just marvel at God's ways, right? Uh, look at the sovereignty of God. There is not a word on your lips altogether that God doesn't know beforehand. There is nothing in your life that God doesn't have control over. He is sovereign over everything. And it is nothing for him to just turn the dial however he needs to accomplish his will in our life. And look at the amazing grace. I just incredible, right? Uh, here we see Abraham's lie, this lie that he did 25 years ago, and this lie that apparently he repeated multiple times. This was the standard we learned. Uh, this lie is a sad repetition of a familiar weakness in Abram's life. Or another way to say it, Abraham has a proclivity to a certain sin. Abraham has a proclivity to this sin. He was worried, my wife is so beautiful, and I'm afraid I'm, they're going to kill me and take her, and he just has a proclivity to this certain sin. Now, I know you and I probably never struggle with this sin. I have never once struggled with, I'm really tempted to say Lisa is my sister. <laughs> I've never had that temptation once. And so... Our selfish nature would say, what's wrong with you, Abraham? But I bet there's a million temptations that I do face regularly that Abraham never once had. You see, Abraham has a proclivity to a certain sin. And we say, Abraham, what the heck's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? What are you thinking? Hey, here's what the truth. You and I probably have a proclivity to a certain sin also. Some weakness. Some vulnerability that we're just prone to. For Abraham, it's to, it's to lie. It's the temptation to lie about his wife. And it stems from a deep-rooted fear in his life. Isn't it interesting, by the way? Write these two words down. Selfishness and fear. Selfishness and fear. Say it with me. Selfishness and fear. And here's what I want you to know. Selfishness and fear will lead us to incredibly foolish behaviors. Abram, what are you afraid of? 
You're God's man. His hand is upon your life. But selfishness and fear will lead us to many foolish behaviors. It'll cause us to do things that make absolutely no sense. It'll cause us to do stupid things, to be tempted by things we shouldn't be tempted by. Uh, I want you to know, do not think for a moment that Abraham is some careless schmuck running around who just doesn't care about sinning, uh, just running amok telling lies because he doesn't care about God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Does Abraham love God? Oh, absolutely. And Abraham wants his life to glorify God. He's living to know God. He, he, he has an impressive walk with God. Don't think Abraham's just willy-nilly sinning. Not at all. Abraham has a ton of fruit in his life that clearly reveals that his walk with God is genuine and real and impressive, by the way. Really impressive. More impressive than yours or my walk. I mean, this guy's done some incredible things. God called him to leave his homeland, the Ur of the Chaldees, where he was already a wealthy man. And God said, hey, I want you to leave all that. I want you to leave your business. I want you to leave everything. My business, my house, everything? Yeah, leave. And do what? Well, go to a land that I'm going to show you. Okay, where is that? I'll show you. You mean you're not going to tell me? No, I'm going to show you. Well, I, how do I know if I'll like it? You don't. Uh, just I'm going to show you the land. Trust me. And on that and that alone, Abraham leaves his homeland. That's a pretty impressive walk of faith, right? And he goes to this place, this promised land, and he gets there, and he finally gets there. He doesn't obey perfectly, but he ultimately finally gets there. And when he gets there, this land that God said he was going to give him, what does he find? I would expect if man wrote the Bible, he would get there and he saw a rainbow and a pot of gold and cherubim and seraphim going up and down saying, welcome to your new palace. That's what it would be like if you're reading the Quran or the Book of Mormon or some other man-made religious work. But no, 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 no. God's man gets to this place where God calls him and what does he find? It's occupied with enemies. And Abram lives not in a house. Abram lives in a what? In a tent. And he goes from Haran where he lives in a tent dwelling by the trees of Mamre because God hasn't given him the land yet. And then he goes 70, 80 miles down to Gerar because God hasn't given him a land yet. And he's still living in a what? This is a man who walks with God. This is a man who has faith. And yet he's a... Messed up sinner. So interesting. I want you to see how spectacular his faith is, how spectacular his walk with God is. Look at Hebrews 11.8. It's on your screens. 11.8. Let me hear you read this, church. One thundering voice. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That is a walk of faith, man. Way to go, Abram, right? Did he do it perfectly? No, but this is how God sees it, and this is what he did. He's got a good walk. Look at verse 9. By faith, he dwelt in a land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. God said, I'm going to give you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a homeland. But he doesn't have it yet. He's just living in tents. 
And Isaac's not even born yet. So we look here, we're kind of getting a preview into coming. He's going to be intense for quite a while. And yet, still walking by faith. And look at this. I love verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Wow. What's that saying? He wasn't looking for a human foundation, a human city that he could call his own. He was looking for something that has a foundation from God. Why do we spend so much time reading this Bible? Because we want our house built on a foundation that is not from man, but from God. Why don't we listen to the things in the world like, hey, let your kid grow up. Don't tell them if they're a boy or a girl. Let them be whatever they want to be. Don't hinder your kids. No, no, no. We don't build our life on that foundation. That is shaky sand, man, leading straight to suicide in children's lives. We build our life on a foundation that is builder and its maker is God. God has built my house. God has built my family. And man, he has, he's a way better builder than I am. Uh, let him build your house. Um, God had promised a lot of things to Abram. And God, uh, Abram is walking in it by faith. He's got a real walk. Abram's been tested too. Uh, there was an alliance of four kings that went against Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram knew Lot was down in there. And they came and they took and they plundered Sodom and Gomorrah. And they took all their goods and they took all their people. And Abraham risks everything he has. He takes 318 of his own trained military men. Shows you how big Abraham's kingdom was. <clears throat> and he goes and he fights against these four kings. And single-handedly, just Abram and his men, they bring back all of the captives and they bring them back. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah says, hey, look, you can have all the loot. You can have all the booty. And Abram says, nope, I'm not touching any of that. I don't want any part of that. I just did this for my nephew Lot. And then he meets the king of Melchizedek. We looked at this. It was Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, a Christophany, a picture of Jesus. And he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's the king of peace. Only Jesus holds that, those titles. And Abraham pays him a tithe of all. What does Abraham do? Abraham gives him 10% of everything he has. This is a man who walks with God by faith, is all I'm trying to point out, right? And yet here this man who walks with God by faith, who, who does all these things, who circumcises all of his house on a moment's notice the same day. <clears throat> but when it came time to deal with his own fears concerning his wife, Abram's Achilles heel was once again exposed and he sins against God and he sins against his wife and he sins against Abimelech and you say, man, what the heck? How could that possibly be? How can you do that? What is going on? Well, he's a sinner. I want you to know most Christians struggle with a particular sin. Most people struggle with a particular sin. It may not be the sin that Abraham had, but you probably struggle with some particular sin. Even Christians who really love Jesus, who have good fruit in their life, they usually still have some sin that's a chronic temptation in their life. For you, it might be gossip. You just struggle with that temptation. 
For you, it might be shopping. You just love going on Amazon, man, Amazon. You're, you're probably on your phone right now. I'm kind of tempted to go right now on Amazon. <laughs> There's that sweater. It's crazy, right? It's just crazy. It's like, what's wrong with you? You're in church. I know. I'm just jonesing Amazon. For some of you, it might be lust. You're always tempted. It's chronic temptation. And you love God. But that temptation's there. For some, it's alcohol. For some, it's food. You're just a glutton. You just always want to eat. You're always battling your weight. For some, it's laziness. For some, it's boasting. You come into a meeting and you just want to take credit for every idea. You're just always boasting. Always trying to tell people how good you are. Some chronic temptation that you face. And when you do it, you go, oh, I can't believe I did that again. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Lord, I can't even say I'm sorry. I've told you this so many times, Lord. Oh. Sometimes I get so defeated by my chronic failure. Sometimes I get so defeated that I fell into sin one more time. Think about how Abram stood before Abimelech. Uh, hey, God's prophet. Oh, did God call me his prophet? Oh. Falling repeatedly to the same temptation is difficult. It's hard on us. And I want you to know, notice here that there is no rebuke from God in this story. God doesn't come to Abram and say, dude, what is wrong with you? Haven't we talked about this? Didn't we already have this problem? God doesn't do any of that. God says, he's my man. He's my representative. He's my prophet. And don't you dare touch him. He's mine. Wow. I marvel at the hedge of protection that God puts around his own. It's so undeserving. And God doesn't say, hey, knucklehead. He says, hey, I want to bless you. And he pours out his abundant blessings on Abram. And it's the kindness and it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And I marvel at his way. Why does Abram, this man of faith, still struggle with sin? Here's why. Because he's a sinner. I want you to know something. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. Do you understand the difference? You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Why are you a sinner? Because you inherited sin. You have a sin nature. What does it mean that you have a sin nature? It means it's your nature to sin. And you inherited a sin nature from who? From Adam, and passed on generation to generation. You don't have to try to sin. You just sin naturally. You, nobody ever teaches a two-year-old, okay, learn these words. Mine, mine, <laughs> said no parent ever, right? 
Mine, everyone learns real. It's one of their first words. Why? Because we're sinners. We don't sin because we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we, we're sinners. The struggle is real. And uh, uh, when Jesus saves us, something marvelous happens. He changes us. We're literally born again. We go from having a sin nature to now having a righteous nature. And it's all his work. And I marvel at it. I remember when it happened to me, it was like overnight I was a different person. I mean, overnight, Jesus got a hold of me. For me, it was 30-something years ago. And in a moment, one day I was different. And I remember getting in my car, and I turned on the radio, and I'm like, dang, listen to those lyrics of the songs that I previously loved. I'm like, I'm not listening to that anymore. And I was changed. God did that. Born again. New life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, the Bible says. Old things are passed away. He's altogether new. And I experienced that. I hated reading before I was a Christian. I never read, much less the Bible. I got saved one day. Suddenly, I can't get enough of the Bible. To this day, 30-something years later, there's nothing I'd rather do. If you give me a choice to do anything you want, hey, Dave, what do you want to do? Leave me alone. I'll go off and read my Bible, right? I mean, like, I just love it. How did that happen? Was that my doing? No, that was all God's doing. And this is what God does. He saves us and we're changed. We're transformed. We're a new creation. Uh, When a person makes Jesus Lord, God gives us a new mind and a new heart. And the sin that we used to revel in now grieves us because we're born again. And we see this clearly in the life of the apostle Paul, right? Before he was Paul, his name was what? Saul. And he was a self-righteous hypocrite. He just wanted to be better than you. And if you were with him, he'd say, you know what, man, I'm a lot better than you. Get your act together, dude. What's wrong with you? That's what he loved doing, being righteous. And he meets Jesus on the Damascus road, and Jesus comes to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he goes, gulp. And his words, who are you? And he's going, please don't say you're Jesus. Please don't say you're Jesus. I'm Jesus, the one you've been persecuting. It's been hard for you to kick against the goads, hasn't it? What does that mean? It means deep inside, Paul knew, Saul knew what he was doing wasn't right. There was something innate in him that was going, this doesn't look very godly to me. And Saul says, what do you want me to do? And God, in a moment, begins to transform his life. And we know the Apostle Paul, God gifted him with tremendous insight into the person of God, who Jesus was. Tremendous insight into God's kingdom. Tremendous insight into human nature. Tremendous insight into the the profound depths and mysteries of God. And he changes Paul in a moment. How incredible. And I love that, that he, you know, how God works in these ways. He gifted Paul. Paul wrote 14 books of the New Testament. Over half of the New Testament written by Paul. 
Not only did he give, make him a, a, a know all this about God and a you know a brilliant writer, but he was also a brilliant orator. He goes to the uh, Aragopos the, the, in, in, in Athens there, to Mars Hill, and he stands up on Mars Hill with all the, the Hellenistic philosophers, the Greek sages that would get there and just pontificate, and, and they would, you know, intellectual giants that would, that would just come to reason together. And Paul stands up there uh, on Mars Hill, and he preaches the most profound sermon. It's unbelievable. And God gives all of these gifts to Paul. But I want you to know something. No matter how gifted you are by God, no matter how many gifts God pours into you, know this, your abilities will always fall short. You cannot have enough abilities to do all that God wants you to do. No matter how gifted you are, your abilities as a husband will what? fall short. Your abilities as a wife will fall short. Your abilities as a parent will fall short. Moses was very gifted by God, but he comes to the Red Sea and he realizes his abilities are not enough. What do I do now? You see, our abilities, no matter how much God gives us, they will always fall short and they won't be able to do the, what God wants to do in your life. And so what does God do? God allows certain weaknesses in our life to remain a struggle for us. And he does this in order to help us be aware and to have a constant dependence upon God. I can illustrate it for you. God gifted Samson with what? What kind of strength? Supernatural strength. Freakish strength. I mean, uh, beyond... I mean, like nothing you've ever seen. This guy broke down walls of a coliseum with his own bare hands. That is freakish strength. Never before, never after has anyone seen that kind of strength. Samson had tons of strength. But let me ask you, how well did he use it? Did he use it to build God's kingdom? Answer? No. Did he use it to build God's people? No. He was the leader of the nation. He was the president. He was the judge of the nation Israel. Did he, did he use it to, to advance Israel? No. Do you know what he used all that power and strength for? To chase women, to get them in bed, to gamble, and to, pray, to play practical jokes. Not why God gave you all that strength big mistake. Samson had so much strength that he wasn't relying upon God. And so Samson comes to the end of his life. And how is he at the end of his life? Well, his eyes are gouged out. He's blind. He's tied to a mill like an animal. And he's going round and round, treading out the grain, doing the work of an animal. It's the picture for us no matter how much gifting you have, if you don't let God direct you, you'll be a blind fool living like an animal. Wow. Wow. So what does God do? God does something incredibly wise. God 
even though he gifted the Apostle Paul tremendously well, God did something incredibly wise. Do you know what he did? He never removed the thorn in, in Paul's flesh. He never removed this weakness that he had. And God has blessed you with incredible giftings. But God has given you this area of weakness, this sin that you struggle with, whatever it might be. The Bible doesn't tell us what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, and for good reason. Do you know why? Because whatever Paul's thorn in the flesh was, we don't know. If you ever read a commentary and you say, this was Paul's thorn in the flesh, it was probably his eyesight. Here's what you can do. You can throw that commentary away because God intentionally did not tell us. And the reason is so that you can relate to Paul's thorn in the flesh. Because whatever you think your thorn in the flesh is, you probably think, I bet that was probably Paul's thorn in the flesh. As a matter of fact, let's look, let's flip over 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Are you tracking with me? You see, here's the question at hand. Why didn't God just remove this temptation from Abram? Why didn't God just take that away? God had given Abram so many gifts, so many areas where he was incredibly strong in his faith. Why didn't God just take this one away too? Why didn't he? So that Abraham would stay what? Humble and dependent upon God. Um, write this point down, if you will. To be powerfully used by God, we must be fully reliant upon God. Was Samson used powerfully by God in his life? No. He played a fool in his life. In his death, he was used powerfully by God. But... Uh, to be powerfully used by God, we must be fully reliant upon God. So God does something very interesting in our life. He says, Dave, yeah, I'm going to deliver you from, you're not going to listen to that music you listen to. You're not going to do this you used to do. You're not going to do this you used to do. But I'm not going to deliver you from everything because then you would be like Samson and you would think you were amazing and you would use all that strength for your folly. Uh, and he does the same thing for the Apostle Paul here. Second Corinthians 12, are you there? Are, do you understand uh, where we're at? Or is this making sense with you? Uh, chapter 12. Follow along with me. Uh, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and to revelations of the Lord. Uh, there's probably a footnote in your Bible there. Paul is saying, I, like, like it, it's profitable for me to tell you this, but, I, but I'm a little concerned. I don't want you to think I'm boasting. I'm not. Right? That's what he's saying in verse 1. Verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Who is Paul talking about? Himself. And he's talking about himself in third person because he's, he's trying to say, listen, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to glorify me in this. But there's a man who was caught up to the third heaven. What the heck is the third heaven? Well, in uh, the first heaven, it speaks of our atmosphere, our ozone, right? The second heaven speaks of the stars, the Milky Way galaxy, the, the universe. The third heaven in this culture, in this mindset, was the place where God dwells. And Paul is saying, I was taking up, not floated up above the sky, not into outer space, I went into 
the throne room of God. I went into heaven, right? Uh, Verse 3, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Uh, What's he saying? There are no words, there is no language that could properly communicate how glorious the things that I saw. If I tried, it would be unlawful. It would be just a travesty. It would be just like a mistake. Uh, There's no way I could explain it. Uh, Verse 4. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except for what? My infirmities, my weaknesses. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone think above me, think of me above what he sees me or hears from me. Uh, I know that verse 6 is a little bit confusing. Let me see if I can pray, uh, paraphrase it for you. Uh, he's saying, I want to boast about how amazing these things that I saw were. But I don't do it because I don't want anything, anyone thinking too highly of me. I don't, want, I don't want to sound like I'm so spiritual before you. I don't want anything, anyone thinking more highly of me than what my life reflects and what my teaching reflects. That's what he's saying in verse 6. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation or by the abundance of gifting that God gave me. Look at this. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of who? Of Satan to buffet me, to beat me down, lest I be exalted above measure. What's he saying? God has given me tremendous blessings. God has given me tremendous insight. But let me tell you, I am painfully aware of how, what, what, a, what a messed up person I am and how weak I am. I got this battle in my life that I just is always going against me. Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, he might, uh, that it might depart from me. Lord, please take this away from me, Lord. Get rid of this thing that's causing me to stumble and to sin and to mess up again and again and again. Lord, I'd, please take that away. You ever pray that? Lord, I don't want to fall into this sin anymore. Lord, please change me. Lord, I'm so grieved that I did this again and again and again. Oh, Lord, wretched man that I am. That what I want to do, that's not what I do. That what I don't want to do, that's what I... Lord, please take it away. You ever been there? Look what Paul, look what Paul says. That's what Paul's praying. Verse 9, and he, that's Jesus, said to me, read these words with me out loud, the red letters, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. No, Paul, I'm not taking this away from you. You're going to continue to struggle with this. But don't worry. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is revealed in your weakness. What does that mean? It is through your weakness, Paul, that you will stay dependent upon me. And your strength, no matter how much I give you, will never be enough to accomplish all that I want to do in your life. 
And so I'm going to keep you humble. And that's going to keep you from resting in your own ability. And it's going to keep your eyes fixed and focused on me. And my strength will never let you down. Wow, just incredible. Verse 10, therefore, Paul says, I take pleasure in my infirmities. Uh, this word weakness, by the way, uh, in the Greek is, is hysthenia. Uh, hysthenia, uh, it means weakness in mind or in body. Uh, just a, you know, a propensity to, to be messed up, in other words. Uh, and look what he says, verse 10. I take pleasure in my infirmities, in my weakness in mind and body. I take pleasure in reproaches and in needs and in persecutions and in distresses. In other words, I take pleasure when, when I don't know how this is going to work out and I'm in trouble for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's he saying? When I can't do it on my own ability, then I'm strong in my faith to trust in what? Jesus' ability. And oh, how powerful this is. Uh, here we see uh, it is our weakness that keeps us dependent upon God's strength. God, why don't you take this thing away from me? Why, why do I have this temptation to lie and say she's my sister? Because it is your weakness that will keep you dependent upon my strength and to keep you from being like Samson who just runs amok in your own strength thinking you can do it on your own and ruining everything and becoming a blind fool who's living like an animal. And so here we see this incredible grace of God. And if you struggle in sin, oh, I just want you to know you are free in Jesus Christ. And if you are tired of struggling with the same sin over and over and over, welcome to the life of the Apostle Paul. Welcome to the life of every believer. And that is what keeps us dependent and our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus. Every Sunday morning, I drive to church and I say, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. And please be merciful on your people. For life is hard and it's difficult and they need to be fed. Lord, please strengthen and bless them. And I am fully dependent upon him because I know I cannot do this. And that is true for all of us. And this is what it means to walk with God. And when we do, he is faithful. Moses leads the people. Good job, Moses. But they come to the Red Sea. Bad job, Moses. What are you thinking? And we never have enough strength to accomplish what God wants us to do. But God says, no problem. I got you. You need my strength. And we come to those proverbial Red Seas in our marriage. And we come to those proverbial Red Seas in our parenting. And we're like, God, I don't know how to do this. If you don't do this, it's not going to happen. And God says, way to go. Keep your eyes on me. My strength is made perfect in your weakness when you're dependent upon me. Woe to the man who thinks he can stand on his own. Woe to the man who thinks he's righteous on his own. Woe to the man. Uh, I want to close. I want to leave you with five uh, super quick points. This isn't an accident. I'm going to go through them super fast. I didn't plan on spending a lot of time on these uh, because we don't have license to sin, right? And anybody who has a heart for God knows that. But we're all going to, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do? Sin. We're going to sin. Uh, so what do we do with those, those areas where we have chronic temptation, where we're just, we're prone to fall that, that for Abram, it was the sin of lying about his, his wife calling us. What do we do when we face those things? Well, here's what we do. Five quick things really fast. Number one, stay dependent upon Jesus. That's the whole reason that weakness is still in your life so that you'll stay dependent upon Jesus. You cannot do this on your own. 
so don't try. Stay dependent on Jesus. One of the first verses we ever memorize as a Christian is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? If you, if you know that verse, say it with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me and I'll direct your path. What is that saying? It's saying, stay dependent on Jesus. Don't start your day without talking to Jesus. Don't start your day thinking you can do this on your own. That verse goes on but to say, by the way, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Uh, stay dependent on Jesus. Number two, guard your weakness. Uh, hey, if you battle a certain temptation that's a common struggle for you, protect yourself. Don't be a fool. If you're on a diet, you don't go hang out at the ice cream shop, right? <laughs> protect yourself. Guard yourself. Know that you're weak in that area and put up boundaries there to protect yourself. Be wise. Know that it's just bigger than you. You can't handle it. Uh, number three, get help from others. Get help from others. Um, here's a verse that really uh, resonates that. It's in James. Uh, let's read it together. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Guys, when we get together in men's ministry, we don't go here and go, hey, let me tell you how amazing I am. Let me tell you how much I know about the Bible. If you think that's what men's ministry is, you got the wrong idea. We gather together in men's ministry and say, man, I'm struggling this area. I mean, I need help. And this verse, this passage really spoke to me. Here's the insights God gave me. Uh, let me share this with you. And let me, I think it'll help you in your situation. And we help each other, right? You ever watch those natural, National Geographic shows? And the, the cheetah is always in the, in the tundra, and it's always there. And there's a pack of gazelles, and they're beautiful, and that cheetah... And that cheetah springs out. And that pack starts running, right? And what happens? There is always runs right in the cheetah runs right into the pack until what happens? Until one little beautiful gazelle goes, I think I got a better way. I'm gonna do this by myself. And he goes off by himself. And the moment he does, what is he? He's dead. A lone sheep is a dead sheep. That's why every week I tell you, get involved in a small group, right? Uh, uh, get help from others. So important. Don't try to do the Christianity is not a lone sport. You be like, you're part of the, the body of Christ. Uh, number four, pray focused on God's will. Pray focused on God's will. What does that mean? What if Abraham would have just prayed focusing on God's will? God, I'm afraid we're going to Gerar. There's a king there. He's a Bimelech. I'm afraid he's going to kill me. My wife is so good looking. He's going to take her. I just know it. And he's going to kill me. Oh, wait a minute, God. Wait a minute. I'm going to pray. I'm going to focus on your word. Lord, you made a covenant with me. And you said that I'm going to have a son. You said Sarah's going to have a son. We're going to have a son together. And that son is going to be the one that you use to build a great nation. And the Messiah is going to come from that son. And I haven't had a son yet. I, I don't have a worry in the world. When we pray focusing on God's word, it transforms our vision. Pray focusing on God's word. Uh, don't pray, God, help me with this, help me with this, help me with this. God is not your genie in a bottle. Pray focusing on God's word. That kind of prayer changes things. And the last one, and uh, so important, um, 
pray, uh, focused on God's will, and then lastly, uh, rest all of your hope on the grace of Jesus Christ. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.